You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. And SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and I'm speaking to you as the full moon rises above the uh, fork and a bough in the gum tree in the front garden. So it's all very, very, um, very pretty. And um, joining me is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I'm not too sure you can see the full moon from your office there. Uh, no, Giles, I can't, but I've seen one before and I know what it looks like. Uh it's great when it rises over the water, but uh, it's also a special uh, special welcome to our very special guest this evening. Yes, indeed. Look, I, I hope that Alex can see the full moon. Um, we're joined today by Alex Wanhouse. He's the Chief Systems Engineer for the Australian Energy Market Operator. Alex, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast once again. Giles and David, it's an absolute pleasure. And no, I can't see the moon, but I can see the sun setting, um, which is uh, rather beautiful, I have to say. Well, that's fantastic. And look, um, one of the reasons why um, we're having you um, here today is that um, your, or, or your organisation can, um, might not be able to see the moon at the moment, but it can see the future. We last had you um, on just after the integrated system plan um, came out, and that was the 20 year, the draft, that is, the draft integrated system plan, which sort of plots a whole bunch of different scenarios out to 2040, including most hopefully the step change uh, scenario, which um, conforms to the Paris climate goals and what we need to keep temperatures down to around or a cap or a maximum of about 1.5 degrees Celsius, which um, seems to be the right thing to do. In the last week or so, AEMO has in- issued another very important report, and this is the Renewables Integration Plan. And this is absolutely crucial, Alex, because you're basically telling us how much renewable energy you can integrate into the grid, both technically and theoretically, and also under current rule market rules and regulations. And um, I know I'm talking too long here, but I guess the upshot of it was, was yes, we can actually incorporate an extraordinary amount of renewable energy into the grid, including up to 75% instantaneously as early as 2025. But to do this and then to go further, we need a change in the market rules and market regulations. Perhaps I should let you speak. Yeah, Giles, you're you're absolutely right. Um, We we are um, very proud of the work that uh, we have done with the Renewable Integration Study and absolutely complements the work um, that is mapped out in the Integrated System Plan. I mean, maybe just to to briefly recap, um, in the Integrated System Plan, we have really seen that Australia is on a transition to a energy system with a much higher share of uh, renewables. And that is because, you know, we know existing generation is retiring and we know that firm renewables um, are the most cost-effective way of uh, replacing the generators that are exiting. And that's renewables both at the distributed end uh, and also at the large scale end. Um, And while this while the ISP really looks at the question of um, how to build a reliable, secure and low cost system, we thought um, 
it is really important to look now in detail on how do we actually make a system work with a um, higher share of renewable energy. So we have picked uh, the year 2025 as it is sort of uh, modeled in the ISP in both the central scenario, but also the step change scenario and ask ourselves the question, how do we make this work um, with current technology um, and assuming sort of the current uh, regulatory regime. Maybe later we can then explore what, what new technologies will mean for our ability to go to even um, greater levels of renewable penetration. But you're absolutely correct. We believe that uh, we can achieve 75% um, renewable penetration. Um, but there's actually a lot of work that we need to do. I mean, we can really take this discussion in two ways. I can I can maybe give you a bit of an overview of here, all of the challenges that we need to solve, and then we can maybe talk about um, uh, the solutions that we need to put in place. How do you want to take that? Well, gosh, that's an interesting question. I um, haven't actually sort of had a conference with David, but um, look, I, I, look, I'd like you to maybe sort of go through the challenges and then we can go through the solutions. I'm mean, interested to know how difficult the solutions that you've proposed are. And um, I guess the important thing to mention here is that uh, when you're talking about 75% penetration, you're talking about penetration of wind and solar, these variable technologies that you probably only go back a decade or so ago and people are saying it's impossible to integrate more than 10% at any one time. So it seems to me that the thinking about the grids and the acceptance and the comfort with the new technologies has 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 um, improved or, or developed remarkably over the last decade or two. Just before Alex uh, start answers, I, I, I might point out for some of our listeners that we've already achieved 50% uh, instantaneous, that is for one half hour, uh, wind and solar penetration, including behind the meter, and 10% of the time in the last 12 months, uh, we were over 33%. So, and of course, South Australia has run at well over 100%. So actually, we, we, the system is already doing it. The question is, I suppose, which Alex will point out, why it can't do it sustainably or why we need changes when it's going to be doing it all the time. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, uh, Giles and David. So maybe let me unpack what are actually some of the issues uh, that um, we have to solve as as we are going to seventy five percent or beyond in in what we call instantaneous renewable penetration. Sort of really that looks at a half hourly interval and and looks at the amount of energy that will that is provided by renewables uh, compared to more conventional generators and this is really important because it means if we can solve the challenge of running at 75 percent or beyond of instantaneous renewable generation that really forces us to solve all of the uh, challenges that we need to solve to um, basically do that over extended periods of time so maybe the best way to unpack those issues is really looking at um, the different timescales on which issues occur. So really, when you when you talk about renewable penetration, the the question that people ask most fre frequently, and actually given the beginning of this discussion, what do you actually do when the sun isn't shining or when the wind isn't blowing? So that question has been asked and frankly, very comprehensively answered. We actually know what needs to be done uh, to achieve that and to balance resources. And the answer is very simply to complement renewable energy resources with a sufficient storage or 
dispatchable technologies. Um, that's, for example, what we're doing in the ISP. But that is not the question really that we are looking at in this renewable and in, uh, integration study. What we're really looking at is, is the shorter time scale. So um, on a five minute level or a one minute level, right down to the millisecond level of the issues that we need to solve um, to enable renewable penetration. So let's maybe step down in, uh, in the different timing. So uh, one thing that happens when uh, renewable uh, renewables in increase in the NEM, for example, you actually get uh, bigger what we call ramping events. Um, so for example, if you have a cloud front moving over a solar farm or you know a city with distributed PV, or you have a storm front going through a wind farm, you actually get renewable output increasing and decreasing quite significantly. Historically, the biggest observed ramping event that we had was about uh, 1.4 gigawatts per hour in the NEM. Now that is going to potentially increase up to 4.5 gigawatts per hour in only five years. Um, that's a very, very big increase and the system needs to cope with it. Um, when you look at a system that maybe doesn't cope with it, it can actually have some very severe consequences. Um, some of your listeners might be aware that um, in Alice Springs, we had a system black event and there were many, many factors that contributed to that. But um, actually, it all started with a very big solar ramp event. So we need to ensure that we can forecast those ramps. And then we need to ensure that we actually line all of these dispatchable technologies, you know, um, be it, for example, batteries or pumped hydro schemes. We have them lined up so they can respond to those ramp events. So that's, that's one of those issues. Then as we go further down, maybe in sort of maybe sub five minute intervals, um, we get into sort of the domain of what we call frequency management. So uh, again, as most people know, we, we actually have to run the energy system in a very tight frequency band around 50 Hertz. Um, and if a major generator fails um, in, for example, the, the biggest generator in the NEM is Colgan Creek at the moment, and um, that would cause a drop off of 750 megawatts, then all of the other generators basically need to put more energy in um, to make up for that shortfall. And, and uh, as that occurs, uh, typically the frequency drops, and then you have to mobilize additional resources to inject more energy uh, to compensate for that. That's typically catered for in the frequency control ancillary services market. And um, what we are observing uh, in this study is as, as we have more renewables in the, in the NEM, really two things happen. One is um, what we call inertia is reducing. So there's a sort of traditional plants that have big generators that are spinning that can sort of instantaneously um, provide additional energy simply through the rotating mass of the generator. And secondly, we just have fewer dispatchable generators often available. So we need to ensure that we have um, a sufficiently fast response um, if uh, frequency uh, is, requ is required um, and, and we have additional uh, resources lined up. Then if we go to maybe even shorter timescales, we get into the domain of maybe voltage management and, and system strength. Now system strength um, is sort of the, 
new magic word that gets banded around a lot. It is actually a really simple concept in the end. It is really the ability of the system to maintain a nice sinusoidal uh, voltage waveform and to also maintain the phase angle of this of this waveform if you have small disturbances and la or large disturbances. That's very much... So, um, so, Alex, just to interrupt for our listeners, the phase angle, uh, I understand, is the two different waves of reactive and active power, but you could tell me I've got that completely wrong. Oh, there can be there can be a phase angle between the the active and the and the reactive power, yes. Um, but this is actually within within one uh, sort of sinusoidal volt voltage form. Um, under certain circumstances, actually, that that sort of waveform can sort of stop and then start at a different point. And as you can ima imagine, that would that can be a very disruptive event. So anyway, just just imagine you want to have basically a nice um, sinus wave, and you do want to have as little ripples and no jumps and no kinks in that wave. That's really what what we have to ensure. Um, and normally, what happens in the system that gets maintained again through very conventional large synchronous um, generators. Um, um, and they basically are fairly resilient to, to disturbances. And a lot of the current generation of renewable technologies, they basically follow the signal that gets set by those uh, conventional generators. And as you can imagine, as you sort of remove conventional generators and increase the amount of renewable generators, there comes actually a point where the renewable generators um, don't have enough signal to hang on to, and then the system gets confused and um, can break down. The sort of 20th century solution for that is, is to basically put more traditional synchronous generators in, and that's then called a synchronous uh, condenser. And that is something that um, is being deployed, for example, in South Australia. And um, we are also um, procuring some of those synchronous condenser services now in the West Murray, which is one of the areas where there are particularly low levels of system strength and um, many generators um, wanting to connect because it's a fabulous resource. Um, maybe later we can unpack maybe more 21st century solutions in form of grid following. Well, Alex, builders, but... let's, let's, there's, there's so many things to talk about there, but let's just talk about that. It seemed, as you say, you. You point out that's a 20th century solution, whereas everyone uh, in the sort of uh, uh, inverter camp knows that you're really going to go to batteries and grid forming inverters uh, as the inertia inevitably continues to drop. If I might call it the microgrid approach linked up, or, or uh, which is essentially what it's. But my 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 problem is in looking at this uh, renewable integration study. It doesn't seem to have any concept of that still. It still seems entirely uh, focused around inertia and how we can get more inertia into the system or maintain inertia and more synchronous condensers and doesn't seem to have any real view of the technology changes that, that some of us see coming. So, David, we certainly didn't want to get, give the impression that there are no new technology solutions out there. Quite the contrary. We we are actually very, very hopeful uh, of the role that uh, grid forming inverters can play. Um, we're actually participating in a number of um, exciting trials, often funded by ARENA, 
um, to test what these technologies can deliver. Um, and sort of we have seen almost a, a little bit of a, a precursor of what new technologies can do in the West Murray, where through a retuning uh, of some existing inverters, um, we've actually been able to uh, manage some system security issues. However, it, it is right that the renewable integration study focuses quite deliberately on current technologies that are proven and tested and does this on a very short uh, time scale of 2025. Um, because we really wanted to say, even with everything that we know, can we solve those project, uh, those issues? And the answer is clearly, yes, we can. And this is only stage one of the work. Actually, in stage two, we are actually going to look in much more detail at grid forming inverters. And in, in terms of the stage one, do you foresee that there'll be much need to retrofit the existing inverters? Or I guess for people looking at putting inverters in in the future, how should they think about um, what technology they're going to need, if I could ask that question? So I think the answer is probably different to uh, at the large scale and, and, the, uh, and the distributed end. Um, so we are talking to a, a lot of um, developers of large scale projects about, you know, trialing new generations of technology and, and maybe even trialing batteries with grid forming inverters. And uh, that's obviously then a fairly drawn out process to make sure that it meets all of the requirements that we have for connecting large scale plants. Um, at the distributed end, as we are also highlighting in the renewable integration study, um, we actually would like to see some changes that are really important to ensure um, system security and frankly underpin future growth of distributed PV. In particular, what we would like to see there is a much greater fold right through capability of inverters. Because one of the issues that we have now identified is if you have a, a disturbance of voltage or frequency on the system close to maybe an urban center where there's a lot of distributed PV connected, that can actually now trip off. Um, and then it, it, we basically need to have more resources available to compensate for that tripping off. That was, by the way, also one of the reasons why uh, very recently we had to, uh, under certain circumstances, constrain the import of uh, over the Haywood interconnector um, just to prepare for those uh, rooftop PV tripping off. Um, but as I said, with um, next generation of inverters that have better write-through characteristics, we actually don't have to do that anymore. And you mentioned the Haywood interconnector. I guess just moving on on the topic a little bit from system strength, which I think we're going to talk more about, but it's going to be a developing topic. As far as the 2020 ISP goes, AEMO also released an update that noted quite a lot of changes in costs. Transmission costs have gone up. Uh, gas costs have gone up. Uh, battery costs are clearly way lower than the ISP originally contemplated. And pumped hydro costs have gone up. And I know you looked at, uh, well, the ISP looked at the fact that rooftop solar behind the meter is essentially running at double uh, the rate forecast. Um, do you think these are likely to mean significant changes in, in 
in the in the, I guess the least re, least regrets options. I guess I'm particularly concerned about the increase in transmission costs because that's going to make the whole RIT, uh, RIT test more complicated. And I'm concerned that the ISP there's still not enough authority in it to uh, get things done. So. You are right. We have actually recently um, uh, published um, some of the changes that we have um, uh, made as a result, actually, of the really fantastic feedback that we got from many stakeholders uh, since the publication of the draft ISP. Um, you know, there have been some some very exciting changes. Uh, I think we are seeing it uh, in the market that large scale batteries are uh, are much cheaper. Um, we probably also recognize some of the challenges of, you know, new uh, pumped hydro schemes might, at least in some instances, um, where it's not some of the established projects, um, more difficult to develop and potentially more costly to develop. Uh, but that doesn't really change anything in the fundamentals of the ISP, because the ISP is really driven by the exit of the existing generators that simply reach the end of their life and um, we have to find a replacement solution and maybe some of those changes might change the mix of different dispatchable technologies that we're seeing in the final isp um, but that's not a fundamental change and it's also something that ultimately the market will actually decide what is the least cost uh, solution to invest in you're also right that we are starting to see um, increases in the cost of transmission projects. Um, there are probably many factors behind this. Um, we haven't really built that many transmission projects in the past. We have um, a lot of other uh, civil infrastructure being built. All of that might create some uh, cost pressures on, on those projects. And clearly there is somewhere a point where um, specific transmission projects might not be um, the least cost outcome for the nation uh, anymore. But we are actually quite hopeful that even with um, the increases that we have reported, um, the uh, interconnected solution for the NEM that we have identified is actually still um, the least cost solution for the NEM, that means it's the solution that delivers the greatest benefit for consumers. Yes, but that's not, uh, I, I hear that, and I'm sure that uh, is true according to the ISP, but that's not the actual test overall for, necessarily for the RIT. Uh, um, uh, and so that, and, and I also questioned four years, but uh, to, to get, um, a process approved is still way too long. But that, that's just my off-the-cuff comment. I, I just wanted to ask another broad question. Uh, so I read some great commentary, uh, at least I think it was, from Cameron Potter from Hydro Taz talking about, uh, if you like, the uh, ways of modelling least cost and whether indeed least cost is uh, necessarily the only way to think about how to model a system. But I also wanted to ask more broadly about that in the context of the way it's worked out. Essentially, the ISP has come to favour new wind and solar in areas that have that require the least amount of transmission, if I could put it that way, rather than looking at the better resources 
uh, in, say, North Queensland, and particularly, I guess, the hydro resource in Tasmania, one of the comments that we all know is that as the proportion of variable renewable energy increases, the duration of the required storage is probably going to get longer. Most of the time now we don't need only short duration, but sometime in the future we're going to need longer duration storage. I know there's a whole lot of questions tied up in that, but I could uh, just wondered how you, how, how you were thinking about that challenge between, I guess, uh, uh, transmission and, and renewable uh, quality. So, David, I, th I think it's right that what we are trying, again, in the ISP to do is, is identify what's the least cost development pathway, which means, you know, least expense for the people of Australia. And where we have existing transmission infrastructure, which you're right at the moment is obviously not necessarily in those locations where we have the best renewable resources, um, but it might, from an economic trade-off point of view, still better to you know, use the existing infrastructure, build some renewable projects there, maybe take a small penalty on the um, resulting capacity factor of your wind and solar farm. But net-net, uh, on a total system cost basis, that's the, that's the lower cost outcome. That said, in the long run, we need a lot of new renewables um, well over... 30 gigawatts in the next uh, 20 years. And we know, and in fact, we are already seeing it right now, we don't have enough um, grid infrastructure to accommodate that. So over time, as you see in the ISP, we are actually starting to recommend building transmission infrastructure into those areas with fantastic resources, for example, in the north of Queensland, which has not only good solar, but also good wind resources. Um, obviously, the connection to Tasmania with um, both fantastic uh, wind resource and also access to deep storage uh, reservoirs as, as just some examples. So that is all part of the plan. But sort of um, what we're trying to do is, is doing a, a stage development um, that um, minimizes capital expenditure and uh, and cost for consumers. And just to, uh, look, I, I, I really think Alex, um, that's I could ask a lot more questions. Uh, can I just ask one more question about the modeling, which is probably of less interest to 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 our listeners? But it's just that uh, what we end up uh, with in the ISP is kind of a, a recommended sort of. Um, uh, least cost generation mix, if I can put it that way. And then I understand that you then run that through a, a separate model to make sure it can actually uh, deliver the enough uh, reliability for every half hour of every year. Um, I, but it's only a recommended model. People can still build a lot of other stuff uh, in, in a lot of different ways. So um, I guess... I'm wondering whether the ISP shouldn't be extended in some way to, to um, I mean, it's just this general question between planning and the market uh, and whether, I guess I'm asking in your view, uh, is the current system, regulatory system, uh, got the appropriate balance between planning needs and uh, market-driven management? So with the ISP, we now have um, the actionable ISP framework. And if in the ISP we actually manage to jump over the hurdle of the cost benefit 
analysis um, guidelines, uh, then we can actually do more than just recommend a project, but we can declare a project actionable. Um, and that means that the uh, project actually does get implemented. It still has to go through a sort of shortened um, RIT-T process, uh, which still includes the PADR uh, and PACR stages. But um, uh, I certainly hope it will give um, more clarity on what the future development of the network backbone is um, that we really need in this country. And uh, I probably shouldn't be asking, but do you have a view on uh, how new generators should get access to transmission? Should it be the, uh, you know, should who should who should how should <laughs> who should pay for the transmission? Should it be like state governments or, uh, who then sell it down to the generators, or should it be consumers? Do do you have a view on that, or you just think that's someone else's problem and your 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 goal is just to work out what should be built? I think it's a really important question. And I think what we are seeing at the moment is, is we probably need a, a, um, a better model to equitably share the cost of transmission infrastructure between consumers and, and generators. And there's actually really exciting uh, developments happening at the moment. Uh, for example, New South Wales uh, wants to build the Central West Renewable Energy Zone. And I think as part of that development, uh, they are exploring you know, a model where between the state, um, the generators and consumers, we have a much better risk sharing arrangement. Um, where not sort of consumers have to pay up front for all of the transmission infrastructure, but the, the state takes a little bit of the risk, uh, maybe supported through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And then uh, in return from a contribution from uh, the, the respective projects, they actually get much greater certainty on the uh, grid capacity that they can access. Um, I think a model like this is really pointing to the future that we need in the NEM. Um, I think historically the um, open access model has, has served as well, but we are also really seeing um, examples where it doesn't work that well and where it actually causes um, a lot of financial pain for a lot of uh, projects. And, uh, you know, the, um, the West Murray zone is, is a case in point. And I think we need to learn the lessons from that and we need to adopt some of those new models as they are, for example, being developed in New South Wales. Uh, Alex, um, Giles dropped out on this call. I guess we can blame uh, the internet. Uh, the, he wanted to understand that uh, with the um, solar curtailment, um, how would that actually work? And uh, I guess, would that mean that export limits in return could be uh, relaxed? So I think the future of the energy system is absolutely better orchestration of, of different resources. Um, so if we have better control over, um, for example, distributed battery resources or other demand responses, um, that would allow us then to curtail less in times of 
uh, low demand because we can effectively generate additional demand. But even if we have a um, low demand condition where we have maybe an excess of solar that maybe the system cannot deal with, then if we have a high level of controllability, we can really surgically maybe remove a certain fraction of um, the generation and uh, therefore ensure that the economic impact of that is minimized while maintaining system security. It's also important to note that in those times where curtailment might happen, we probably have an excess of generation anyway, uh, which means that the value of this generation in an economic sense is pretty low. So um, again, the, the economic impact um, is limited. But in order to keep it limited, we really need um, much better controllability um, of the output, in particular of, uh, of distributed resources, then we can uh, minimize the, the effects of that. Alex, I, I, I think we might leave it there. I, I congratulate you for trying to steer the um, uh, AEMO and the ISP uh, through a very wide range of competing interests. And uh, I think we all share a vision of uh, how things can continue to develop. Thanks again. Thank you, David, and uh, thank you also, Giles. And that was Alex Wanhouse, the Chief Engineering Systems Engineer for the Australian Energy Market Operator, and apologies for dropping out um, halfway through that conversation. And um, I'm feeling really quite sorry about that, but um, I guess that's what happens with the NBN. Australia sort of snatches defeat at the uh, point of victory, but David, one suspects that's not going to happen this time around, and um, there, um, a lot of research and a lot of effort to getting this right for the integration of this inevitable transition to renewables. Well, that's right. The ISP is still the uh, by far the best informed and most modelled outcome for the that um, sets this um, required electricity transmission or the best least regrets investment, but. Uh, and the more we look into the ISP, the more room I still think there is to continue to improve it. It's a fantastic effort, but uh, certainly uh, far from perfect at the moment. We've already seen big uh, assumption revisions. And I think even the question about, um, well, for me, the, the big question uh, which Alex answered is, is about, uh, you know, these remote areas, Tasmania and Queensland, and uh, they have the best resources. And uh, the question is, uh, but they have least, least ability to contribute because of transmission. No, that's right. Yeah, well, it's going to be fantastic. And what's well, going to be fascinating to see. And as you say, I mean, the ISP and even some of the conclusions that they've reached in the Renewable Integration Study um, will be progressed as time goes on because we've just seen the whole view about um, what is possible change quite dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years, and I think we'll continue to do so. And it's, it's a uh, really interesting and fascinating debate um, as we go forward. And even just um, Giles, this week, Giles, Giles, one of, the, one of the things that uh, has come forward is you know, essentially the ISP is. Uh, responsible to the COAG Energy Council. That's if you trace the, its, its history lineage up. Uh, but the COAG, you know, what we saw this week from the Smart Energy uh, webinar was basically a, a, the whole gaggle, a group of uh, state governments really getting solidly behind things such as the ISP and renewable energy in general and making some pretty big commitments, whether it's in Queensland, uh, new solar farm, 
uh, a big one, biggest one in Australia, whether it's um, uh, 100% renewables by 2030 from the Liberal South Australian government, uh, Bill Mitchell in West Australia, no, no more um, uh, thermal generation over there. I mean, there's, there's a lot of big statements, but they contrast uh, pretty strongly with the federal government. How did you find the Smart Energy Conference? Well, fantastic. Yeah, look, just one minor correction there, Bill Johnson from WA, and we also had Lily D'Ambrosio from Victoria, and it was fascinating to have four energy ministers on a panel at the same time, um, basically pushing each other sort of in, in, in terms of ambition and trying to, you know, get the things done to sort of get their roadmaps underway. And um, look, the, the Smart Energy uh, webinar that we had, um, co-hosted by the Smart Energy Council and Renew Economy, Great interest. More than three and a half thousand people registered. More than two and a half thousand people actually um, clicked and, and listened for at least part of the time. We seem to have at least fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred on for most of the time. So great interest. And and what was really interesting was just some of the solutions. Apart from the energy ministers, just hearing some of the solutions and how they've actually advanced. So, you know, you're talking about the hydrogen economy, you're talking about sort of alternatives for steel making, kicking coke and coal out of the system, alternatives for aluminium smelters, which you've also written about. Um, a lot of different solutions coming out, but um, once again, the transition to renewables underpinning it all. Uh, that's right. So was there any particular strong highlight? I, I, the state government support and the contrast, you know, with, with say, Keith Pitt uh, and... Uh, Angus Taylor at the federal level was very striking to me, but was there anything else that particularly caught your eye from the conference as a single other biggest feature? Oh, probably not a single one, apart from some of the work done by some of the people, such as Beyond Zero Emissions and some of the others about the number of jobs that are out there. Um, look, I've actually come down to Canberra, one, to see my uh, mum for Mother's Day and to get a good internet connection to finish this podcast. And I'm just looking across the river now at New Parliament House, and they're all going to congregate there this week. And... Um, What's going to be really interesting, I think all eyes are going to be on Parliament House to find out what, if anything, has actually changed since the COVID-19 pandemic came in and has that changed their thinking. There was nothing to suggest it has to date, um, but we'll just have to wait and see and, um, and really hope for the best. Absolutely. Well, we shouldn't spend too much longer on, on this podcast, but I do think it's worth drawing attention particularly to what... Uh, Anastasia Palisay and Queensland have done in announcing, what is it, a 400 megawatt, um, I think that's something like that, Western Down solar farm with Neowin, and Neowin, I think, one of the most uh, uh, hard-pushing uh, renewable developers in Australia. Um, no battery there, no. I don't think, was there? Well, no, we thought say? there would be a battery. Well, yes, no, we thought there would be a battery, but apparently there's not at the moment. Look, I've got to say, NeoN have got an extraordinarily good strike rate on um, renewable energy auctions. They've done well in ones held by Victoria with the Bokana um, solar farm. They've done well with the ones of the ACT with um, the Hornsdale wind complex. Um, they did very well with South Australia and the, Horn the Tesla big battery. Um, yes, they've done, and, and they got into the original Arena um, Solar 12 to kick off the large-scale solar. So, um, yes, fantastic strike rate. They must be doing something right, I'm guessing, bidding at the lowest price at, um, at the crucial times. I think they just understand the market they're operating in uh, and what it takes to win, and they've been able, I must say, they don't just win the contracts, they've been generally able to deliver, by and large, uh, the contracts on time. And, and make everything happen, which is a sign of quite a good company. But enough on them. I really wanted to point out that Queensland at the moment, with that and the, uh, the big wind farm that they announced, 600 megawatts or something, there's over a gigawatt of ongoing renewable uh, development there. 
And whilst we fix the transmission problems up, and one of the things I also draw listeners' attention, if anyone can be really bothered readings, Hydro Tasmania put out some quite interesting documents studying modelling and the need for longer term storage. As the variable renewable fraction increases in Australia, as it surely is going to, then what we're going to find is that the need for longer duration storage is going to increase. And um, even though batteries are cheaper, um, they're not going to probably be all of the answers. So there's some, some more problems to look at there. And I, I recommend that reading down there in Tasmania. Of course, it's self-serving by Hydro Tasmania. They want to build pumped hydro, good on them, uh, long duration. But uh, it's a lot of uh, good material there that's well worth a read. And uh, well, uh, the point is that we got we're going to see this more renewable energy. So even though uh, there's not many many new projects, a thousand megawatts in Queensland's uh, pretty helpful at the moment. Absolutely, and just on that matter of long um, long um, duration storage, energy storage, a story just emerged over the weekend too from America, where a, um, a utility in Minnesota, uh, Great River um, Energy is Greater River Energy is actually installing a battery that um, isn't. Air, aqueous airflow battery and it's been backed by Bill Gates and Australia's Macquarie Group and it's long storage battery they're going to have a one megawatt pilot with 150 hours of storage now we don't know much about this technology and whether it's going to be successful the promise is that it's dirt cheap and incredibly long lasting if it does work it will change a lot of thinking about renewables. It will basically guarantee almost seasonal storage. And of course, it will compete headlong with pumped hydro. So that is one to watch and um, great interest on the website this week in that story. But um, this time, stage, David, um, thanks very much for holding the fort when my internet connection dropped out um, with the conversation with Alex. It was really great to have Alex One Hat on board from the Australian Energy Market Operator. I'd like to thank our sponsors um, Evergen and Solarate Energy and um, we'll be back again this time next week. Yes, it was fun talking to Alex. Uh, uh, he's, he's one of the most knowledgeable, if, uh, you know, people obviously in the Australian electricity industry and so uh, as I said on the, in the part of the interview you missed, he's got a difficult job because there's endless competing interests about let's build my project here and now and why can't we do this? Um, uh, I'd like to be pushing for certain things in the ISP to happen a bit faster, but myself. Uh, but yeah, it was great. And Giles, always a pleasure. And thanks to the sponsors. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, a market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.